Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Hi Marjorie. Hey Claire, how are you? I'm looking forward to all that chocolate that's coming soon. <laughs> Do you think that we've hit the age where we can have our own baskets and the kids should fill them for us? I mean, they can go to the shops now and buy us chocolate. Yeah, I mean, mine were still clamoring to do an Easter egg hunt in the garden, get me to hide lots of little chocolate eggs. I, it just makes me laugh doing the Easter egg hunt because when they were little, they never used to find all the eggs and they would appear in the summer in like June or July or with a chocolate egg that they'd clearly found in the garden and just eat it. It's been in the elements for three months, but you know, foil's a pretty good barrier to rain, so I'd be like, oh, don't eat that. Yeah, how many ants and slugs have crawled over that? Never mind. I know. And when we we used to do it in our garden too, but then when we moved to a shared garden, I decided I better count because the but the kid because the kids were notorious for missing the odd one. So you know, I would count out sort of fifty eggs or whatever, and then I wouldn't allow them to eat any until they'd got fifty back into the home <laughs> base or whatever. Because I could imagine the more elderly neighbours in the house or in the block being a bit sniffly about finding chocolates amongst their daffodils or whatever. But yeah. yeah, I feel like you know our our youngest now is what. Uh, 13. So I think, you know, it's maybe time for some parental comeuppance. We should say, I want an Easter basket delivered the morning of Easter at my door. Oh, good luck with that. Or maybe I'll get you one and you could get me one. Oh, yeah, I think that's a much safer bet, if I'm honest. Yeah, we're not like, we're likely to be disappointed and really interested if we do that, aren't we? So we've also got uh, some work across our groups this month for Scottish Book Trust and their story campaign, Scotland Stories. Um, well, they'll be collecting your stories of adventure, true life stories to put into their um, book that they always create in November for Book Week Scotland. So if you're part of our Open Book Network, we'll be writing, looking at that this month um, with the hope that your words will end up in the national book that goes out from the Scottish Book Trust. But today we're reading a story <coughs> called Blue from Liz Holiday um, and alongside a poem by Miriam Nash called Song of the Mainland, both of which I really enjoyed. So um, I'm looking forward to sharing them. Shall I make a start? Yeah, thanks, Claire. Blue. When she was nine, she dreamed that the ocean around Australia was blue, bluer than her brother's eyes. She dreamed of him sometimes and wondered if he dreamed of her, if he missed her as she missed him. At 12, her class studied Australia at school. She was silently pleased, as if it was a secret only she knew. For homework, she traced a map carefully and carefully coloured it in. Red-brown in the middle, green-brown around the edges, and the ocean bluer than her brother's eyes. Then it happened. She pressed down too hard. The pencil snapped. There was an odd scent, a mixture of cedarwood and chemicals. She suddenly felt bereft, without understanding why. But she knew that scent and the feeling of loss. She was four. I'm big now, I'm nearly five, she told anyone who would listen. And she was using her special blue pen to make a card to send to her brother. Her brother who had left. And then she remembered a day when everything was so much bigger because she was so small. There it was again, the scent of cedarwood and chemicals, and now the smell of the sea, the sound of seagulls screaming, 
and so many people shouting and crying and laughing. She's four years old and she's wearing her best red coat over her best blue dress and the ship looms over her like a mountain of steel. People are going up a long plank that leads into the ship. Some of them are crying. There's a man standing next to it. He's very straight and he's wearing a white cap and a jacket with shiny buttons. Mummy and Daddy are there and so is her brother standing next to a trolley stacked with cases. You don't have to go, says Mummy. You watch yourself, says Daddy. I'll be fine, I'll be fine, says her brother. I'll write. See that you do, says Mummy, sounding suddenly angry. The ship's horn wails. It is so loud that she is scared and has to hold on to Mummy's dress. The seagulls tear up into the sky, yowling and complaining like cats. I have to go, says her brother. His hand is on the trolley. Mummy reaches out to him and he hugs her and then, awkwardly, Daddy. He looks down at her. She wants to ask if he'll bring her a stick of rock when he comes back off his holiday, but she's too shy, even though he's her brother. And Mummy said he was going away for a long time. He bends down. These are for you, he says, and hands her a packet of colouring pencils. Twelve of them. She can count to twelve. Shall we stop there? Yeah, I wondered originally just even about that idea when she's dreaming about the ocean around Australia that's blue, bluer than her brother's eyes. Do you think she's in Australia? I can't work out where she is. Hmm, I hadn't even thought about that. I thought she was not in Australia and he was going off to Australia. It could be the other way around. She could be in Australia and he could be leaving to go somewhere else. I guess so. I don't have a sense of how far it is, really. You know, it could be New Zealand or it could be... I mean, but there's something about that opening statement that thinks makes me think she doesn't see the ocean very much. Yes. You know, if you're around ocean, you understand the colours that it is, at least. You know, so the idea of dreaming about it wouldn't be unusual, I wouldn't think. Or I wondered if because she was so young, you know how children make these strange connections between things. Um, And it was just that she's been told that's where her brother's gone. Mm. And she knows the colour of his eyes. And then somehow conflates the two. I mean, I can just imagine the description being, oh, your brother's gone far across the ocean to Australia. But, you know, the eye colour thing just had me thinking, huh, because, you know, if you live near the sea or you know the sea, you know what colour it is. And and you know it changes, but there's only certain parts of the world where it changes to kind of quite light blue or quite light greeny blue, you know, whereas it's not necessarily like that very often at Portobello, shall we say. I wonder if there's something in it to do with as well, you know, not wanting to think about it as anything other than that sort of benign blue yeah. And not wanting to acknowledge that it can be dangerous and grey and choppy and, you know, yeah. she, she wants to think of it as a safe place where her brother... Yeah, I definitely recognise that secretly being pleased because you know something about something that teacher's teaching you. Sitting with knowledge thinking, and it might not even be knowledge in her case, it's, it's like, I know someone who lives there. It doesn't mean she knows, or I know someone who is there. I, it doesn't mean that she knows actually more than the teacher, weirdly, but it's like, yeah, I recognize that feeling almost like in, in the pit of your stomach or in your body cavity, like, I've got something secret about that that you don't know. And and that sort of feeling that warm 
contentment of your secret. And the connection there, I guess, with a brother who she sounds like she hasn't seen very much. And and who's quite yeah. a bit older, I think. Yeah. And so, you know, but that thing of like, when little children don't really acknowledge missing someone or loss or whatever, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're not thinking about it. The thing that hits me in the first sort of th- three little lines of this story is she's dreaming about him she's wondering if he misses her she's got this secret at school already you know there are sort of quite important incidents for her to be remembering her brother and connected to her brother to stay connected but i bet you if you saw that child on the outside you would never know and that's particularly true of small children they're just so good at being present in the moment and you never really you know they're not good about articulating big things so particularly i guess if the child feels her parents are also missing her brother. You know, they're not going to pile in, I wouldn't think. No, yeah, I think you're right. And I remember uh, or recognised really clearly that feeling of pressing too hard on a pencil that's nice and sharp and snapping it, particularly if it was sort of one that hadn't been sharpened before, because pencils are never quite the same, are they, once you've had to sharpen them? And I wonder too, yeah, I mean, uh, that makes me think of, yeah, that sort of preciousness of things like that. And it made me wonder when this was, when this was set, because, you know, I'm not sure my children thought of pencils as particularly special. Some, maybe, I think the sort of prevalence of pencils was much greater when my, you know, 10 years ago than than 40 years ago, or certainly 40 years ago in Tehran. But, you know, so pencils were precious, you know, when I was growing up, but I'm not sure they were as precious. I'm not sure. I, I don't know if yours yeah. felt that way. Maybe the think, smelly ones. Or, you well, know, yeah, the scented ones. I think they, f- they felt that about sets. If they were given yeah. a particular box of pencils, they wouldn't like one to go missing from the set they'd be you know they would hunt out and they'd like to keep the set together but individual pencils I'm not sure they would have thought they were particularly special it's funny because my children at some point went through a stage of collecting pencils from places so you know they would want to take modern pencil if I was in London or they would want you know they would that was a thing they would choose to buy from a gift shop with their own pennies and then they went through a phase the girls particularly of kind of certain pens you know a particular thin line pen or whatever pen when they were into drawing but yeah pencils this isn't this is much earlier than those and I guess again back to the connection with the brother right yeah things that are given but you but you don't necessarily think of a five-year-old as as holding something anything precious apart from maybe an animal that they sleep with or but it also makes me laugh because I was the parent putting the sets back together you know I obviously come from a time when pencils were rare and precious and so I promise you if you open my cupboard in the room that I'm sitting in just now you would find sets of pencils that I had sort of carefully put back together <laughs> when my children were finished using them long out of use long like you know gruffalo triangle pencils nobody in my house needs a gruffalo triangle pencil anymore I should find someone suitable to give it to but give them to but you know I was the one putting them back together because I still feel they're precious even though they're definitely a dime a dozen I remember those triangle pencils they were triangular because it was supposed to make you hold your pencil properly wasn't it yeah. so yeah. it be good for pencil grip and also worrying for the adult because we find them quite hard to hold and so you think mm, what's wrong with my grip <laughs> yeah exactly I love that little section that just reminds us how powerful smell can be yeah. in evoking memories 
And it made me smell a new pencil too, or that smell of sharpened pencils. I know you've got a pencil sharpener in the office, which is just great. I've got an old fashioned one that was a Christmas gift a few years ago where you sort of squeeze the two bits at the top and it pops out and your pencil fits in that hole. And then you turn the handle at the back and the shavings drop into a little clear receptacle below. It's very satisfying. Did you have those at school? We had them and they clamped yeah. onto like a side desk, those huge metal ones. I can, And as I'm saying that, I can hear the sound of the grinding of a pencil. Well, it, the good thing about it is it can't over sharpen because there's some sort of stop. You, you push your pencil in as far as it can go and then it won't let you over sharpen. Because mm. the problem with the sort of smaller pencil sharpeners that I would have, you know, sitting about in the children's desks or whatever, is that you could just keep going and going and going. You get a lovely point and just go that millimeter too far. And then it's broken off. Yeah, and then you have to start again. But also cedar wood. I mean, I don't know that any of my pencils were... Are those yellow pencils, you know, the ones that were number two? We always used to have to do our exams with them. You had to have a number two pencil. The the black and white striped Stadler ones. Yeah, exactly. Are they cedar? I'd imagine that they aren't anymore. But back to the girl. I love that little line. I'm big now. I'm nearly five. I absolutely recognize it, you know, yeah. from young people who are always wanting to be older. And so she was four when she was making the card to send her to her brother. But it's quite an early memory to remember, you know, when we get into the story too, to remember him leaving because it would have been before that. I don't know how early, how early is your earliest memory, Claire? See, my problem is that my family are quite a gang of storytellers. So there's quite a lot of stories that are sort of family folklore about me when I was little that kind of have been made into memories because I've heard them so many times, but I'm not actually sure what I remember for myself, if that makes sense. Well, I remember that. I feel that way about Iran and getting out because, you know, that story has been told or various points of that story has been told by so many different people. Um, But I, I kind of keep referring back to what I can picture, which makes a difference, I think. So if I can picture the scene, I know that it's my memory rather than various other things. But I remember being screaming because my mother wouldn't let me wear a yellow dress because it had gotten too small (laughs) and it was for a two-year-old. So (laughs) I must have been not, you know, maybe three. That's, I mean, it's terrible that your first memory is you throwing a massive temper tantrum, but uh, it helps place it. So that, you know, that makes sense. But, you know, remembering the the speech is interesting. And as you say, maybe it's someone reminding her of what she saw instead. Yeah, because there's a lot of detail in that memory. Mm, yeah. And wanting wanting to ask for rock um, seems a normal thing. But, but actually, in the end, he's given her something that lasts a lot longer, hasn't he? Shall we read on and see what happens? Yeah. There's not um, not much left of it to read, but I'll give it a go. Okay, so he's just given her the pack of pencils. Thank you, she says. He turns to go, pushing the trolley with all the cases away to the long plank. Come home soon, she says to his back, but he doesn't turn round. Better hurry, says Daddy, and they race inside, upstairs, as fast as they can, to a long balcony with a concrete wall higher than her head. She can't see over. But Daddy picks her up with his hands under her armpit so they hurt. Now she can see. They're level with the deck of the ship, but it's all the way over there, even though it feels like she could reach out and touch it. There he is, says Mummy, and points. She looks. All she can see are little blobs. 
She can't see her brother, but mummy said he was there, so she waves and says, come home soon, though she knows he's too far away to hear. The ship sails away. They go home. She keeps the pencils in their box. She'll use them to make a drawing for her brother when he comes home, not before, but he doesn't come home. And so she makes a card instead. After that, she uses them up, breaks them, loses them. Even the one as blue as the ocean around Australia, bluer than her brother's eyes. So this second part of the memory feels more like a like a child's memory of being lifted yeah. and pinching and not being able to find the brother and not quite understanding kind of understanding what's happening but feeling slightly outside of it and that yeah. description of the boat being level with the ship but it's all the way over there and she feels like she can touch it has this, has a childlike quality to me in the sense of she's not really able to stand back and take in the whole scene and know the bigger picture as it were come home soon saying it twice it's probably something she's heard her parents say but also not recognizing the kind of impossibility of that statement because you you know you wouldn't say that to someone getting on a boat yeah (laughs) Um, of that magnitude uh, you would say see you soon or can't wait to see you when you get here or we know whatever but not come home soon as if they have agency in that in some way yeah and what's interesting to me is that it there's no reference to the parents sadness except that one line in the previous part where the mum says you don't have to go you know so she's young enough not to be taking in her parents responses to it because I think any older than that and the child would be really aware if mm. if the mum feels strongly enough to say you don't have to go <laughs> then I think any child who isn't really tiny would pick up on the fact that their mum was unhappy and um, the thing of what that line did for me was it made me think about his the brother's perspective and wondering you know if he's really excited and often a great adventure and he really really wants to go and is looking forward to the trip you know or whether he's having to go for a specific reason or work or something else you know or, and or doubting he, his decision or doubting yeah exactly so but we don't know whether that's mum being sad because he's away exactly or whether it's the boy himself you know, the mum's picking up on his wobble yeah. which is you know for me that I, like, I enjoy that not knowing and that speculation. Yeah, absolutely. And then at the end of the story, I love that kind of um, determination that she's not going to use the pencils until he comes home and then he doesn't come home. <laughs> so she cracks. <laughs> yeah. And that kind of um, real childlike, well, okay, fine. And then, you know, after that, she uses them up, breaks them, loses them. It's true over a really long period of time, surely, because we know that when she was 12 and she breaks a pencil, she's upset about it or at least upset about it enough to remember, you know, that she shouldn't have. Yeah, that's true. But then I don't know about you, but once one is broken, then you kind of get looser, as it were, with the rest, probably. It's like trying to keep a new car clean once it starts getting dirty, you think. All right. (laughs) And it's almost like breaking the magic seal, isn't it? You know, she's not going to use them. She keeps them in the box. And when he doesn't come home and she decides she'll make a drawing for him, well, it's a free-for-all after that. And then that very sad for me, the last line about even the one as blue as the ocean around Australia, bluer than her brother's eyes. The, the story begins with the ocean in Australia being as blue as her brother's eyes, so they're definitely fading. For me, that made me think, gosh, you know, I, I find it really hard to visualize colors when I'm not looking at them. 
as shades of colours. Obviously, I, I can conjure blue or green or whatever, but if you showed me a colour and said, is that bluer or less blue than someone I know well's eyes? I'm not sure I'd be able to tell you. I think I'm the opposite. I think hues really stick with me. So I'm able to like go into a shop and think, ah, oh, that's the same, you know, purple color that's in the in the Persian rug in the front room. So that oh no, so, I would need the know. Persian rug to be sure with me. <laughs> so I always have a sense whether colors are going to work together. I'm by no means a design specialist, but I definitely have a memory for shades. Not I can't match them, but I can say, well, that's going to work because it's of the similar hue. That's interesting, but. I feel like the point of that last is, is that it's fading in her memory, which feels because a bit so sad. long since she's seen him. Yeah, yeah, and I, w- I want her to see her brother, but we don't get the satisfaction of that, do we? In the story, it's really about her growing away from that memory and and by definition from him, which also makes me think that maybe this is a hundred years old. This story, because you know, today you get a WhatsApp message, or you get a phone call, or you get a Skype, or you get a FaceTime. You know, ships have Wi-Fi. You know that. It, there isn't that sense of being cut off. Whereas maybe not even in our day, but, you know, in my dad's day, for example, and I know we've spoken about it before, you know, when he got on a boat to come to America, to go to America, his mother didn't hear from him for six months, you know, till he landed and was able to send her a letter. He didn't have the money for a telegram and he didn't have anywhere to send it anyway. But, you know, so there were long periods where he wouldn't see anyone and it was expected maybe not explainable to a young child like this. So it makes me think this is not our time, really, this story. Mm. It's really hard to imagine that, isn't it? We have such proximity of communication these days. And, you know, even though, you know, we we were sitting in the office earlier today and I think we both got a message from one of our children that we didn't necessarily expect to hear from in that time. And, you know, in my day, when I was at school, my mum would not hear from me all day, you know, from first thing in the morning till I came home at the end of the day or after whatever activity. But yet, you know, we both received a little message about some sort of change of arrangements or need or something during the course of the day. Yeah. And I was reflecting on that today, thinking that actually my eldest is at uni now and I, you know, I do hear from him, but I certainly don't hear from him every day or even every other day. You know, and he's now, he'll turn 21 this summer, about to be, and he'll be 21 on his next birthday. But, you know, <laughs> he really, the, the older he gets, the less he's in touch. And that's a good thing. Um, but, you know, in his first year of uni, he was in touch an awful lot more every, every other day, I'd say. And then it went to sort of every three days. And I'd say I hear from him once a week or once every 10 days now, which feels about right because actually you know, he's off enjoying and doing the right things and looking for work and, you know, that's okay. But it, it, it does stretch out. Whereas the people in, under my roof, you know, I can tell you with pretty much certainty where they are all day long and in the evenings, because I can figure that out too. So it's a really weird onus on a parent in a weird th- way. I, I think we worry more. I think it's our older ones weaning us off. <laughs> I think it was sort of more I'm, I'm the same mine's, mine's in Elderson's second year and it's definitely a lot less little check-in messages this year than there was last year which as you say is a good thing because it means they're you know they're enjoying what they're doing and they're busy and they're fulfilled and they're not thinking about home which is kind of what you aspire for aspire for your kids to be like um but yeah I, I, I'm not sure it's them needing to message us regularly. I think it's them <laughs> gradually weaning us us off the need to have three day, you know, a message every three days. And you know, once they've got it down to sort of once a week, once every ten days, they probably think that's about manageable. 
Yeah, it's funny. But imagine putting them on a boat and not hearing from them. Mm. Yeah, and I don't necessarily blame the brother. You know, in our house, the big brother doesn't always message or call the little brother, and it can go like almost a whole term, and I'll have to say, your brother hasn't heard from you. And he'll say, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. But I think, you know, when, you, when you're off living a different life, you don't always think who you need to check in with. So this boy might be writing his parents, but she might not be aware of it. Yeah. You know, or, or what matters to her is that he's come home and he hasn't. So it doesn't really matter what the letters say. Yeah, I, I've definitely pegged this as a different time than now. But it would be interesting to know what everybody else out there thinks, because we could be wrong. Shall we move to the poem? Yeah, thank you to Miriam Nash for letting us read this and talk about it. It comes from her terrific first collection called All the Prayers in the House, out with Blood Axe Books in 2017. Song of the Mainland I'll sing you a song of the mainland, where the lights are always shining, where the wind stays off the whiskey, and the bread is factory rising. We'll go no more to the islands, we'll go no more to the sea, for the lighthouses are empty, there's nothing there for me. And when we get to the mainland, we'll give our shoes a shining, and run for the bars and dance halls till the sun is church spire rising. We'll think no more of the islands, we'll yearn no more for sea, for the lighthouses are empty and have no need of me. I'll sing you a song from the mainland, with the lights above me shining. The wind still burns like whiskey, yes, the bread is factory rising. Oh, send me news from the islands, What's churning out at sea? The lighthouses are empty, but do they think of me? I'll sing you a song of the islands, as the streetlights dull their shining, of the darkest stretch of darkness, and its one light tower rising. Oh, take me back to the islands, oh, take me back to sea, for the mainland's bright and gleaming, but what is here for me? Beautiful use of rhyme in that poem. And it's, it feels like a song and is called a song, but it does feel so tuneful, doesn't it? Yeah. Tuneful. I'd written on my on my copy of my notes, it's like a shanty, a sea shanty. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's really lovely to read out loud, just the, the rhythm of it. So it naturally flows. I think Miriam's, um, I think I'm right in saying that Miriam's father was a lighthouse keeper. Ah, okay, that would make sense. So some of the poems in the book are about the things, the parts of life um, that you need as a lighthouse keeper and and all the things you do. There's a beautiful poem as well about all the things you do as as the man who keeps the light because it involves an awful lot more than just turning on the light or managing the light. So, But this makes me think of the time when, you know, probably in, I don't know which island, Many of the lighthouses were automated um, in sort of late 80s. It makes me think of that when they were turning the lighthouses into automated lighthouses and then therefore not needed. It reminded me a bit of, um, and I think it's the rhythm and the, the subject matter, but um, the Lake Isle of Innisfree, Yeats' poem. Just that same sort of rhythmic and sort of slight melancholy yeah, exactly. And then it turns, of course, you know, because this idea that the light, there's no lights or the lighthouses are out or empty, they're not out. Um, so there's nothing there for you. 
And, um, and then at the end, the beautiful image that actually when you work out, you know, that's that grass is greener thing. When you work yeah. out that the mainland, which is the place that everybody's always trying to get to on islands because they've got everything, factory risen bread and everything else to go with it, street lights. Actually, everything is really on the island. You know, that kind of looking, you're always looking across a body of water to what you don't have. Um, it reminded me very much of being on Tyree a few years ago for a wedding. Um, and at the end of the night, the bride and groom had arranged for a sort of local bus service to drop all the wedding guests at the various bed and breakfasts and places that they were staying around the island after the wedding. And we were the furthest out, which in Tyree is not very far, but we were still the last on, on the bus um, at the end of the evening. And uh, my husband said to the bus driver, who was a woman who I would say was in her 60s or 70s, so would you get over to the mainland often? And she said, what would I want to go there for? <laughs> there's, nothing on, <laughs> there's nothing on the mainland for me. And I was just, it just reminded me of that little moment just in, in this poem. Well, and I guess she's the lucky one that doesn't always Absolutely. aspire to something else, you know, because uh -huh. the Tyree is an incredibly beautiful place, mm. having been there a few times too. What's amazing about it, of course, is that it doesn't have very much um, elevation. So I would or be wanting trees, to see trees, trees, you know, yeah. and um, hills and things. Yeah, I love that idea of that shift. And I know in Scotland, lots of people leave islands because they can't find work and that increasingly they can't afford homes on them. But then you know, there is a shift to move back to them as well. I think property prices aside, there there's a real shift to move back to them now and people trying to make their lives. When we've come away, I think, in the last 20 years of, of kind of, you know, going to make your fortune somewhere and the, the generation below us, I would say, and this is a wild generalization, but, you know, are much more interested in their quality of life and the kind of what they mm. get out of life than we ever, or certainly I ever was in my 20s. And I think that's brilliant. But so that means that, you know, they see what an island would have for them rather than, you know, thinking I've got to go make my millions in London or whatever. So that generation is learning this lesson that's in the poem a lot faster than we ever did anyway. And just that sense of being able to, to find such contentment as to want no more. Yeah, exactly. And what's there is just, as you say, uh, something that you learn through time, I think. Yeah. And, and, and that line of the streetlights dulling, they're shining or dull, they're shining is a really beautiful way of putting that thing of the, you know, the, the kind of gold that you're looking for under the rainbow when you get there isn't always what you thought it was going to be, you know, that kind of, oh, yeah, I now live somewhere with streetlights, but actually, so what, you know, I'm turning back to the, to the one light of the island that, you know, even though things change is still better than what I've got here. I love that image of we give our shoes a shining and run for the bars and dance halls when they first yeah. arrive on the mainland. Oh, that's totally what our life is like, isn't it, Claire? <laughs> I don't know about your shoes, but mine certainly need a shining. Yeah, absolutely. Till the sun is church spire rising. I mean, just it's a beautifully done, beautifully crafted song of a poem uh, or poem of a song it's wonderful so um, and you have real joy and then the end feels joyful as well um, so yeah I loved it thank you Mary. I think that's all from us today I hope everyone has great adventures in April no matter what they're doing or what they're planning and we'll really look forward to being with you again next month and thank you for having us in your ears thank you